postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Holy Spirit, lead us as we have this conversation and uh, as we land this plane for this incredible series that we've been on. Anoint our words with your wisdom and with your grace. and those who listen, may this be, yeah, just a wonderful conclusion that really answers a lot of their questions and sets our church up for a new generation and a new culture that is not only theologically committed to the message of the gospel, but is culturally sensitive and inclusive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, bro. Let's uh, let's let's do this, man. Let's do this. We are now on the final episode. What I'm what I'm thinking might be the final episode because depending on how long this goes, it might get split into two episodes. <laughs> right. We've had that so, happen before, right? We we've had that happen pretty much the entire season, uh, with very few exceptions. They've all been split into two. <laughs> um. So we we are now discussing uh on on these closing episodes. And by the way, just by way of reminder, um, as we wrap this series up, we are gonna do a question and answer episode um so please make sure to send your questions in i got some already uh that have come in by mail or or by comment so uh, make sure you get your questions in uh because once we do this q a episode i'm not going to be bothering max again he's been doing this for like two months you guys you know so take advantage while while he's here to do the q a episode because when it's done (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to give this guy a break. <laughs> has it so, been two uh, months? I feel like it has been. Yeah. I mean, we've done, we're on episode 13 now. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel, I feel like, like, like it might be even longer than two months. Yeah. I'm looking at SoundCloud right now, just trying to see when the first one was uploaded because, okay. First one was uploaded. Where's the date on this thing? Is it not That's not date? very specific. It just says three months ago. Okay. So there you so there go. go. Yeah, three months ago. Far Crazy. out, man. Yeah. Well, um, the other thing I want to also mention uh, and, and reiterate this is that Max has a video version of this. Now, I'm not in that, and, and that's okay, because the only, the only real thing I've contributed to this entire discussion is questions. <laughs> no, bro, you've had, you've had great things to say. You've had, you've I have had, had some, some I've, I've had, I have had some good contributions, um, but I could not have done this without Max. Like definitely the, the way that you have framed this and thought about it so deeply, the research that you've put into it, absolutely mind-blowing. And I've received so many messages of people who are just like, wow. I mean, they feel so heard. They feel so seen. Uh, they feel so excited to be to to be a part of the Adventist movement, knowing that you can be theologically committed in in to the to the to the to the deepest profundities of what it means to be an Adventist, and mm-hmm. still be culturally sensitive and engaged and inclusive, and 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 not you know just sort of harping on 
fundamentalist rabbit holes with pseudoscience and all the things that come with that. So, you know, like it's possible to be like a diehard Adventist and, Mm -hmm. and just be down to earth and yeah, be full of love and be full of inclusivity and, and cultural savviness. So um, yeah, it's been a really liberating experience to have you on the podcast. So um, Max has a video series called reframing Adventist worship on YouTube. Now it's not finished yet, but I know he's going to be finishing it soon. In fact, I think doing this podcast series might have helped you map out the closing scripts for <laughs> your reframing series. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to have been the guinea pig here uh, <laughs> for, for you to conclude that series really well. But but the thing that's really good about that series, guys, is that it's got a lot of visuals, you know. So obviously on the podcast, you can listen. Um, and uh, But it's really nice to be able to actually see, to see photographs and visuals and things. So definitely make sure you check out the Reframing Adventist series. Now, Max, what's the easiest way to find it? I'm going to link it on the podcast and stuff, but if somebody were to go on YouTube and search for it, how would they find it? That's going to actually get weird. Um, so the reason for that being there was some disagreement um, within like, how, how much can I say? I work for ALC. A lot of the ministries that I am involved in online are ALC based. And I'm not sure what ALC is. Oh, Adventist Learning Community. Yeah, Adventist Learning Community. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I know what it is. Yeah, yeah, no, it's all good. It's all good. Um, (laughs) But it it isn't like a fight or anything. It's just like disagreements within ALC about like what platform made the most sense for the Reframe uh, series to go on. And so we're actually going to be kind of redirected. We're actually going to redo the previous four videos um, that were released. Not like completely redo. Like we're just going to take the material that's there, but we're going to replace the branding with Haystack branding. Mm. Um, and so it's going to be re-uploaded to the Haystack and my next episode will go up on the Haystack. Formerly it was on, I believe Bible, but just because of what that was, we decided that we would put a pause on that, um, and, and be like, okay, no, this goes somewhere else. And then I haven't been able to get the next ones done yet. So it, it, so it'll be on me to get it to people. Yeah. On hashtag watch this space on the Haystack. That's where the full series updated series with conclusion is going to be available yeah um, now their link is is it the haystack.tv is that is that the um you know or what is it, or is it um, .com because I know they changed it a few times so and they're also yeah. they're also on Facebook you guys you can follow the haystack on Facebook great content it used to be the haystack.tv now it's the haystack.org um dot org yep um so that's you know the easiest way to stay up to date on everything um, we've actually like the haystack has just recently brought on like a new cohort of creators. So we're getting more reels and TikToks and videos type of stuff. So it's kind nice. of a, it's a new wave of resurgence at the haystack. So I'm excited <laughs> for that. Awesome. So definitely that's be actually really exciting. Cause when the haystack first started, it was like, it was like the relevant magazine for Adventists, you know, it was just like super great. And then it kind yeah. of went really quiet. So I'm really mm-hmm. glad to hear that. Um, and I've seen uh, that you've been posting a lot of stuff with the creatives, creating Spotify playlists of different Adventist artists as well, yep. um, you know, and in different styles and genres. So I'm excited to see what, what more stuff continue to come out because the Haystack's cool. I, I like the Haystack. Yeah, I've always been a fan. And now like two, it's kind of been one of my dreams, like in Adventism, like small scale dreams, like, I would love to write for the haystack or do stuff for them now. And like, yeah, yeah. For the past year, I've been kind of like sort, not the only one, but one of like a very small group of people actually working on it. So, you know, yeah, it's uh, well, there you go. Different faces. Actually, it's interesting. 
It's interesting and kind of relevant to our discussion today that you brought up that I'm highlighting Adventist musicians because this conversation, it's about Ellen White, but it's about all of us. It's about Adventists. It's about who we are, how we use her, uh, the way our understanding of her words affects how we see and treat each other and how we talk about them. Um, and there is a point that I'm going to bring up later in this discussion that is really relevant to say, and like, look, here we are, like here, here we are. There's a lot mm -hmm. of us. There's yeah, a lot of yeah. contemporary Adventist musicians and what you say about us actually counts for something. So Absolutely. we are going to yeah. get into that today. So, so with, with that said, we are in the final episodes, which I know a lot of people have just been like itching and anticipating, and it is, um, Adventist history and Ellen White, uh, mm -hmm. and how that plays into the conversation over music in our church. And yeah. I, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna start it with this, and and then you know, sort of, you know, uh, serve the ball across the court to you, <laughs> sure. um, because it seems like everyone can listen to everything we've said up to this point, and easily discount all of it with, yeah, but. Ellen White said. Ellen White said, yeah. And then they and then come the quotations, right? So we'll, we'll talk mm -hmm. about those. Um, so I'm gonna throw the ball. I'm gonna I'm gonna serve the ball across the court to you by saying, but Max, um, Ellen White said, bro, and you know she's a prophet, and that's the end of the conversation. You can delete all these episodes. You can you can forget about reframing Avenue's worship. Just Ellen White said, and we're done here. Yeah. <laughs> and they're right yeah. in fact they should delete your whole show like what are you doing why are you still talking to me no, I'm just um yeah and that's that's exactly kind of the issue that it comes down to and it's part of why i've kind of saved both with the video series and with this podcast i'm saying like save the ellen white conversation for last because the thing that we struggle with collectively i think is understanding that there is such thing as real legitimate knowledge, like actual knowledge about things on earth that doesn't come from an inspired source. And all of us live our lives every day with this assumption that like, we don't need prophetic inspiration to trust our car mechanics. We don't need prophetic inspiration to trust our dentists. We don't need prophetic inspiration to go learn a new recipe, right? There are so many levels of human knowledge that are legitimate forms of knowledge that don't require divine revelation. And just because someone is a prophet doesn't undo the fact that humans are able to know things, humans are able to learn things. Things were true before Ellen White was born, right? Truth, truth was knowable before Ellen White ever set foot on this earth or learned to speak or write like th this is what I'm saying is you cannot, it is not acceptable. I don't think you'd ver meet very many like trained pastors in our denomination who would honestly say it's acceptable to like check your brain at the door when you open the pages of Ellen White's writings. That's, that's right. not what they teach us in seminary by a long shot. And that's not um, what Ellen White taught. <laughs> that's not what Ellen White taught about herself. Um, I know the exact for opposite, a fact, actually. <laughs> really and truly the exact opposite. In fact, I know for a fact that on, at least formerly at some point on your website or somewhere on your web presence, you have this really great uh, PowerPoint slide about uh, the difference between 
thought inspiration and um, verbal inspiration, and it apply applying the that concept both to not only Ellen White's writings but also the Bible itself, and just the the groundbreaking like paradigm shifting dynamic that that can be for people. I know, like for me, the first time I understood the difference between like thought inspiration versus verbal inspiration. But yeah, just like it's so paradigm shifting to go from like verbal inspiration to thought inspiration. And it actually makes so much more sense of the Bible and why the Bible is written the way that it is. So the first thing I would do is encourage everyone to go learn what that is all about. Like go check out that resource. Um, obviously, you can direct them to that since you know. Yeah, yeah, it's a I'll resource link it. you made. I'll link it on the. Um, I'll link it on the on the on the podcast. Um, yeah, on the page, the, the promotion page. Uh, I'll link it on there, and I'll also have uh, if you go to the storychurchproject.com slash podcast underneath this series, which is the very top of the page. There's two mm-hmm. bright yellow buttons, orangey yellow buttons, with uh, resources resource links to the bonus episodes. So I'll add a third one with resource links for this one that will include that link. Um, Cause you're absolutely right. And it's probably not something that we can like, we, we, we can't in this particular episode reproduce all that content, but it is there. And, and the bottom line is that how you employ Ellen White in this conversation or really any conversation, it's gonna boil down to two things. Number one, it's going to boil down to your understanding of inspiration, mm-hmm. right? How inspiration works. There is a fundamentalist evangelical version of inspiration, and there is an Adventist understanding of inspiration, and they are not the same not at all. <laughs> by a long shot, which yeah. is why critics of Ellen White, who become fundamentalists, attack Ellen White and the Adventist church so much because our understanding of revelation and inspiration is very different from the classical sort of fundamentalist evangelical version. And so what happens is if you approach this conversation with a fundamentalist evangelical lens, then you are going to use Ellen White in ways that Ellen White herself never endorsed and Mm -hmm. never approved of. Um, And so it's important to understand how Adventists understand revelation and inspiration, how Ellen White herself understood revelation and inspiration. And then when you have that, that, that sort of lens in mind, then it's a lot easier to go and like read her in context and understand the balance and the nuances and make relevant and healthy applications to today. So I really want to encourage you guys to, uh, to check that out, but just for the sake of, you know, throwing a little something into the, into the box for this episode, I would say, although it's explored in much more detail in those, those links that I'll give you in, in, in the page, the biggest difference, as you already mentioned, is between verbal inspiration and thought inspiration in the fundamentalist evangelical understanding of inspiration. And there's nuances there too. So this is mapping out a little bit, of course, but it's still accurate. Um, the, the, they, they, they lean toward what's known as like verbal dictation, right? The idea that when God inspired the prophets, he, he kind of like, they were kind of like possessed and every single word they wrote w- was like directly, exactly the word that God wanted on the page. Yeah. Um, and so what this means then is that the Bible reflects God's thoughts exactly, to the dot, mm-hmm. right? And and mm-hmm. people who are like in the King James only camp are really 
um, hardcore about this. Like, like every yeah. word is exact and every period and every comma and everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. And, yeah. and God dictated it. So this is sort of like leads to fundamentalism. And, and the challenge with that is like when you believe that, then things like context, culture, and personality Text of criticism. the author don't, you know, they don't, they don't count. They don't matter. Yeah. Because the point is that the prophet was just a pen. God yeah. was the pen man, right? Right. He's the one who was actually doing the writing. So yeah. any influence from the prophet's culture, context, or personality just does not come into the picture whatsoever. And so then that allows us to apply that text today in very stringent, uh, straight jackety type ways. Yeah. Um, and Ellen White rejected this throughout her life. So there's a number of quotes that I'll share with you. And um, well, not throughout her life. There was a time where she leaned that way. Sure. But she, she definitely outgrew it. And she has some really strong statements um, that are represented in that series that you can check out in that link. Uh, and just off the top of my head, there's a few where she says, you know, um, the Bible, as, as we have it, um, it, it, how does she put it? Um, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but I am as 100%, like I'm still being accurate here. So <laughs> I'm paraphrasing it because I'm not like reading them word for word, but I'm, I'm definitely yeah. accurate where she says the, 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 the words of the Bible are not God's words. And not, yeah. that's really shocking when yeah. you read that. It's like the things that are expressed in the Bible are, are not, are not, are not his. And it's like, well, wait a minute, like that, that is creepy and that is offensive. And that is like red flags, you know, like liberalism. And it's like, what? Well, then you see that Ellen White wrote it, you know? And it's like, well, what is she getting at? Because Ellen White clearly believed in the infallibility of scripture. Mm -hmm. So how can she believe in the infallibility of scripture and believe this other thing at the same time? And, and the bottom line is Ellen White believed in the infallibility of the message of scripture, that its mm -hmm. message is infallible, that its message is reliable, that its message is something you can take to the bank and yep. count your life on, but that the words used to express that message, she goes on to explain, reflect the education and the personality and the context of the author. And she goes to so far as to say the authors of scripture were not were they were God's pen men, not God's pen. Yeah. Right. So it's the opposite of the fundamentalist idea. Right. And it's like yeah. their personality is reflected in what's being written. Their education levels reflected in what's being written. The context mm -hmm. that they lived in is reflected in what's being written. And so what that does then is it invites us to say, well, if we're going to properly understand and apply this, then we must understand not only the intent that God's trying to get across, but we have to understand this author in their time, in their place, their education, et cetera. So I don't want to go into, into, into in, no, it's, much it's more good. than that because I think that sort of lays the foundation. But the bottom mm -hmm. line is Adventist theology and fundamentalism do not mix. And I know in conservative Adventist circles, that's essentially what it is. You have fundamental and Adventism married together. Um, and that is a foreign substance that has crept into Adventism. It, around the 1920s is when that started. And they mm -hmm. do not mix. Adventist theology and fundamentalism are diametrically opposed. Um, and it's not being liberal to say, um, I'm rejecting fundamentalism as an Adventist. It's actually being conservative to say, I'm rejecting fundamentalism as an Adventist. Because yeah, you had said mix. something. You had actually said something earlier, and I was like, do I nitpick the wording? Because you had, you had kind of jammed the word classical next to evangelical fundamentalism. I Which did, is yeah. just, it's, fun, it's funny because it's like, that's not the classic view of the scriptures at all. Like Christians that's have right. known for a long time that when you open the pages of the Bible, you're going to find things like Paul saying, 
and I say this to you, but not the Lord, right? First mm -hmm. Corinthians seven or any number of Psalms, God, where are you? Why aren't you helping me right now? It's just like, yeah. it's like, okay, this, this is not God's direct speech. There's, there's the mark of humans all over this thing. And that's the point that God, God is communicating himself to people through human agency. Um, Michael, Dr. Michael Heiser always says it like this. He's like, people believe in what he calls the X-Files view of inspiration, where they imagine the prophet just like his eyes roll back in his head and he's like not even looking at this at the paper and his hand is just going. And then like half an hour later, he like his eyes pop open and he, he comes back to his senses. He's like, whoa, that was crazy. Oh, I can't wait to see what I just wrote. You know what I mean? It's just like, and, and exactly. it's like, no, that's yeah. not, that's not what happened. Like these authors, like inspiration functions with the will and the, the, the active mind of the author, like the, the human person is involved, which complicates yep. the, the waters a little bit, uh, complicates the waters, muddies the, I don't know what, what's an expression. I don't know what an expression is. The point is, um, that that's how it works, right? Like God mm. hired writers. He didn't yeah. like stick his hand in the back of someone's head and just be like, all right, you're, now yeah. you're going to write something. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, here's, here's, here's a couple of them just to, um, cause I know some of these, I, I guess the reason why I wanted, what I want to share these, even though this is a whole other episode sure. that really goes into them in detail, um, is because I recognize that if you're listening to this and you're sort of like from the more conservative traditionalist camp, um, you might be really tempted to say, oh, I'm turning this off right now because they are, um, you know, in order to present their uh, views on music, they first have to deny, you know, like uh, right. our understanding of the Bible and Ellen White. Um, they 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 have to deny that, and and so th there might be a temptation to think that that's what we're doing. But listen to what Ellen White herself says, and then I'm gonna stop there and just say, look, if you have more questions, then please go to the other episode that I'll link. Um, that explores this in more detail. But this is from Ellen White, uh, where she writes this: "The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not." God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. It's like, what? <laughs> God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. Like that's, you know, pretty shocking. Here's another statement. It is not the words I want you to listen to me really carefully. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. This is the opposite of fundamentalism, bro. And I'm reading from Ellen White right now, right? It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. And then... What happens with those thoughts, right? He takes those thoughts that he's been imbued by the spirit of God with, and he communicates them in his, in his, according to his personality, his context, his education, his humanity is represented in the text, right? And then she goes, here's another statement where she says, the Lord speaks to human beings in imperfect speech in order that earthly beings may comprehend his words. Thus is shown God's condescension. He meets falling human beings where they are. So he doesn't, it, she doesn't say the Lord speaks to human beings with infallible speech. He speaks to us with imperfect speech. Why? Because all human language is imperfect. Mm -hmm. All human language has evolved within a fallen world littered with limitations. There's no way you can take a language that's evolved in this fallen dimension 
and that language is going to perfectly reflect what is taking place in 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 the heavenly dimension. It's it's just not possible, right? It's like a two D character trying to explain the three D world within a within all the limitations of a two D world. You know, it's just, you'll never have the proper language to express it, and and that's what we're that's what we're dealing with here. So that's just a, you know a few a few few little statements from her writings to to let you know that Max and I are not off the rails here. You know, like a flaming liberals who are just like here to um, knock down the <laughs> the pillars of our church. Um, to to the contrary, I think we would in this particular case we would certainly represent. The, the, the very traditional original idea that up, upon which Adventist theology is founded, not the fundamentalism that crept in later and has caused a lot of problems for us in yeah. many, for many decades. I'm going to stop On that there. point, <laughs> go on. Yeah, but on that point, and th- I think this is going to be an episode where we're doing a lot of pointing people towards resources because this is the kind of thing I can talk about a bunch of things related to this topic, but in all likelihood, they will raise more questions for some people than like, I I do plan on answering some things definitively, but it will raise a lot of questions for people about like, okay, so how do we do theology? How did it get like this? Why was I always told X, Y, and Z? Why did I get the impression from all of these pastors that X, Y, and Z, right? Mm -hmm. So one book, I know we're not videoing this, but Ellen White's Afterlife um, by George Knight. I know people have feelings about George Knight, but this is an excellent book. I read it fairly recently. Um, so the, the full title, this is one of those with the long subtitle, Ellen White's Afterlife, Delightful Fictions, Troubling Facts, and Enlightening Research. So when he says delightful fictions, he's referring to essentially the way that people had begun to think about Ellen White coming into the 1960s. Troubling facts has to do with a lot of the research that was uncovered during the 1970s that really caused a crisis in the church about how we understood Ellen White. And then enlightening research is how he refers to everything that's happened in Ellen White studies from the 80s until now, in terms of us understanding her in her world, understanding her self-understanding, understanding the Adventist history that has kind of skewed how Ellen White is used in the church. Um, To just summarize it, between 1919, basically the 1920s, shortly after Ellen White's death, up until the 1960s, you essentially had like an Adventist turn towards fundamentalism. You can actually also hear more about this on upcoming episodes of How the Church Works, uh, which some friends of ours are producing. Uh, Caleb Isley. Uh, yeah, Nina dude, Bilotto. plug in How the Church Works. You go go on Spotify or whatever your favorite podcasting. Type in How the Church Works. It's so good. Uh, it's yep. by Caleb Isley and his team. I think it's uh, Adventist Learning Community Resource as it well, is. if I'm not mistaken. It is. Excellent yep. podcast series all about the Adventist Church. Check it out. Amazing. All right, go on. Yeah. And, and so basically, they'll, they'll talk about this turn towards fundamentalism a little bit as it related to, um, well, in, in part, at least to like race relations in the Adventist church. Um, but one of the things that happened was people essentially had this like infallible view of Ellen White, not only as a writer, but as a person. And it just created this this whole dynamic. And then in the 1970s, they started discovering more things. I believe it was around the time that they discovered the the minutes and the transcript of the 1919 Bible Conference, which really kicked up quite a stir. Basically, and again, this is something you can read because this book uh, by George Knight actually contains as a, what do you call it? Like a appendix. Uh, it contains the tra- transcript of the 1919 Bible Conference. So you can hear, or not hear, but read A.G. Daniels talking to everyone. A.G. Daniels was general conference president at the time. And because Adventism was kind of 
tentatively flirting with fundamentalism pretty openly in response to like critical um, theological liberalism that was coming out of especially Europe and making its way to the the new world. Um, it's kind of weird to talk about it as the new world in the 20th century, but anyways, uh, making its way over to the Americas. Um, A.G. Daniels was wanting to remind people like, hey, I knew Ellen White. There are certain things that she would want you to understand about how her books were written. Like she had a writing team. She had people editing for her. She had books that were like things that she'd written, but her kind of hired writing helper took a bunch of stuff from her old drafts and old magazine articles and older unfinished books and like spl- re-spliced them together into new paragraphs and new chapters and new sections. Like all of that is stuff that she did. Her husband helped, her sons helped, like, Ellen White was heavily reliant on her writing team and like that is a big part of what she did and she did use sources she did quote extensively or paraphrase extensively from other sources like everyone who knew her knew this some of y'all are younger and you don't know this but it's 1919 and I'm the GC president and I'm trying to tell you this so that we don't go crazy and we went crazy and everyone was upset and we hid I mean, basically, they just kind of didn't talk about that meeting. Um, and that led to us having a very skewed understanding of how Ellen White's inspiration worked. I know I'm, this is now a tangent that we th- I thought we weren't going to go on, but I think this That's is okay. Useful. I think it's I think it's really useful. And what I'll do is I'll link this book um, in, in the show notes and, I, and I'll also link uh, not the show notes. Sorry. Like if you go on Spotify and or whatever, and you look at the show notes, you're not going to see these links. You'll have to actually go to the storychurchproject.com slash podcast and you'll find the button underneath that says, you know, episode 13. I think this is um, resources. So uh, yeah. but what I'll do is I'll link this book. I'll also link the How the Church Works podcast. And there is another book that is was written by Michael Campbell that is mm-hmm. uh, specifically dealing with this very topic. And the name of the book is 1919, The Untold Story of Adventism Struggle with Fundamentalism. And so yeah. what that book does is it traces in, in, in very well-researched detail everything that you're discussing. So if anyone's like really interested in saying, hey, I want to understand how adv- how fundamentalism you know, I always thought fundamentalism and Adventism were one and the same. I Now I'm hearing that they're not, that it crept in later on. I want to understand how that happened. Definitely check out Michael Campbell's uh, 1919 book. Um, and and so I'll have that linked as well. Uh, so you can get it on Amazon. Um, so yeah, I, I'm glad you brought it up because it just gives us the opportunity to resource people a little bit more on, yeah. on some of these things, because that's the thing. Like when we're talking about something like the worship wars, uh, a lot of people seem to like linger at the level of preference and it's like, that's that's not what we're doing in this podcast series. That's never been our intent. There are yeah. way deeper issues at play here. And honestly, it's the only reason why I was even interested in doing this series. If we were just going to talk about preferences, that would have been a waste of time. But it's mm-hmm. all the underlying issues that affect our ability to engage meaningfully with the world. Mm-hmm. And things like fundamentalism, right? Things like racism that we've discussed, you know, Eurocentrism and the colonial mindset, uh, all of these things undergird these wars and our use of Ellen White, which we're about to get into in more detail, like it undergirds this, this tension in our church. And what we're saying is, I don't care if you like a certain style of music or not. It's not really my business to tell you what kind of style of music to like or not like you 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 might be hymns only till the day that you die and guess what i honor that and i respect that and i think that's beautiful in in, in its own right that's not what we're talking about what we're talking about is 
the worship wars, how they play out in Adventism are symptomatic of deeper issues that are really problematic, Mm -hmm. deeper issues that perpetuate abusive ideas about God, that perpetuate coercive and controlling and toxic church cultures, and that kill or strangle our ability to do mission effectively. And so if we value our mission and as, as, as a church, as a denomination with a prophetic calling, like if we value that, then we need to do the work of deconstructing a lot of these assumptions that we've brought into the modern Adventism and realizing a lot of what, you know, prides itself as being Adventism is really an adulteration of the authentic thing. And fundamentalism, I would say, is perhaps one of the strongest um, adulterations of authentic Adventism. Um, Yeah. So yeah, thanks for thanks for bringing that up. But let's let's go ahead and 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 let's you know jump into some of these these things because, um, you know, like I said, you go to Ellen White and for example, you you'll read statements like you know um the 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 bedlam of noise, right? Of uh, that's kind of like the classic the classic go to, um, anything but hymns is bad because of the yeah. bedlam of noise. So so talk to us about it. All right. Well, first of I mean. Since since we've baited everyone for like almost an hour of like <laughs> preliminaries, I thought I was going to build up to this point, but I'm going to lead with this point. OK, the bedlam of noise was hymns. OK, that's and it was probably some of your favorite hymns. Um, and I'm not just guessing that there's research wait, behind you, that. Wait, hold, you're telling me that the bedlam of noise that Ellen White complained about in Indiana, in Indiana camp meeting in 1900. Yes. Wow, you're telling me that that wasn't Hillsong? No. Uh, on oh, account man. of no one in Hillsong had been born yet. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, it's so frankly, funny. I, like, I'm not even a fan of Hillsong. So it's, <laughs> well, yeah. I, I do like Young and Free, but um, <laughs> I do also. Um, like Hillsong but it is, it is interesting because you, you're right. Like, we're talking about the 1900s here, and she's talking about this bedlam of noise. Like, what style of music is she referring to? I had actually never really stopped to think about that too much. It was hymns, you're saying. Almost nobody stops to think about what kind of music was actually played. Everyone focuses on the instruments and they focus on the instruments in a way that really, really misses the whole conversation. Like it just, I think the ambiguity there and the fact that people don't know a lot about music history allows people to project whatever they individually find offensive or distasteful onto that situation. And, or if they don't do that, um, and I've heard people do some weird things and read people doing some weird things. Um, if they don't just project anachronistically, like, oh, it must have been rap. Oh, it must have been death metal. It must have just been like noise music. Like if they don't do that, then they allegorize whatever was happening there and say, essentially mentally treat it as like a precursor or something analogous to something that happens today. And usually it has to do with a very prejudiced interpretation of Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement. Um, And that could be its whole own discussion that it's probably necessary the way that Adventist um, prejudice about charismatics really factors into this conversation. Um, and, and we will get there because a, a big part of this is talking about interdenominational relationships and it gets quite interesting. But um, the point is, it's not some grandiose mystery what kind of music was being played. Um, and I think people need to understand that specifically. So I guess let's set the stage. 
it's the year 1900, exactly like the turn of the century, right? We have just entered the 20th century. Jazz barely exists at this point. Like kind of a, a, a early version of jazz exists, kind of, sort of, but it's not, <clears throat> people will, I don't know, one picture, one picture, when people picture or imagine the sound of jazz, maybe they think of bebop or hard bop. Maybe they think of swing. Maybe they think of something that's a little bit close, like a little rootsier, a little bluesier. I don't know. There's so many different subgenres of jazz, right? So most of that hasn't showed up yet. Jazz music doesn't even have guitars yet because guitars don't even have steel strings yet because Martin, the guy named Martin, for whom Martin Guitars was named, hasn't invented the, the cross reinforcement inside of acoustic guitars to make them have steel strings. So guitars aren't even loud enough to compete with the jazz band. So the, the harmony instrument for jazz ensembles was either a piano or a banjo at this point. That's how early we're talking about here. Like no guitars in jazz at this point, 1900. Um, and while Ellen White does have statements about what happened in Indiana, also it's Indiana, okay? This is not New Orleans. This is not Chicago. This is not Jamaica. This is not even like Nashville, Tennessee. It, I don't know how you can get musically drier than the state of Indiana. Uh, and that's, is that hate on anyone listening to this who's from Indiana? Maybe, and I'll leave it at that. But um, I also just spent a lot of time uh, in my life in Berrien Springs and Indiana was more interesting than Berrien Springs. I'm just being hateful now. Um, I'm getting sidetracked by spite, but um, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not from Indiana. Indiana. Deserves it. I didn't. I would. Just say I would that, have but... my feelings hurt so badly right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm joking, of course. Um, but anyways, so 1900 in Indiana, and while Ellen White does have her statements about like. Um, what was going on there. She is not the only voice in the conversation. Um, there is one Mrs. Haskell at this event. Okay. Oh, actually, no, it's not. It's SN Haskell. It's, it's Mr. Haskell. Okay. Quote, they have an organ, one bass viol. Um, so, and like, pause quote, bass viol, I'm assuming that means upright bass. Um, I did play cello for like a little bit in grade seven before I became a trombonist. Um, cello, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone refer to it as bass violin. Um, that, I think that would be a really weird thing. So I'm assuming that's an upright bass. I, just, remember, I, that this is, be... just remember Indiana's in the context here. So maybe that explains. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, three fiddles. Just playing India. Why are we picking on Indiana? We love you guys. You guys are amazing. Sorry, go on, Max. Speak for yourself, Marcos. <laughs> Uh, okay, so an organ, one bass viol, three fiddles, two flutes, um, three tambourines, three horns, and a big bass drum, and perhaps other instruments which I have not mentioned. Okay, so he himself admits that he might not have been exhaustive in that list of instruments. Um, it's worth noting, first of all, that a seated drum kit what people call the trap set or just like a, you know, a drum set, not there. They do not have one of those. 
um, of the percussion instruments he is actually able to remember and mention is one big bass drum, which assumedly, if it's being played on its own, that means uh, upright bass drum, like a marching band bass drum, uh, or probably not a marching band bass drum, but orchestral bass drum, which is on a stand and you hit it from the side rather than, I just smacked my mic stand. You hit it from the side with a mallet. Uh, hopefully it's not like a big noise in the recording or whatever. But yeah, like at the upright bass drum that you hit from the side with a mallet, not with a kick pedal. Um, so again, get the drum set out of your mind. It's an orchestral uh, bass drum. And then he says uh, three tambourines. Um, I don't know that it's possible for one person to play anything more than one tambourine. So that's going to be um, th- three tambourine players. Um, that has resonance in a number of denominations i know a lot of people associate the people running around with tambourines and smacking them with pentecostalism but you have to remember that in 1900 pentecostalism is just a like getting started like they are absolutely the new kids on the block they're not influential at this point um and there is tambourine culture in other denominations which is going to become uh relevant in a second so tambourines. Um, interestingly, he says three horns. Horn, uh, as I said, I was a trombonist, so I spent most of my high school years in the context of like wind orchestra, like concert band. Um, wind orchestra and concert band, I think, might actually be slightly different, but whatever terminology. Um, horn can be used colloquially by brass players to refer brass and woodwind players because people will refer to a saxophone as a horn i don't think people will ever refer to a clarinet as a horn but like saxophones are woodwinds that sometimes get called horn um a horn could be a colloquial way of referring to a trumpet or flugelhorn or a cornet but it also could be a technical like a proper term for english or french horn right or someone might I suppose, use it for a, a baritone or a euphonium, right? So the point is horn is not a particularly helpful word for identifying exactly the instrument. It's a, It can be used very colloquially. So I just want people to understand, like, this is how carefully you have to think about a list of instruments. Like, it's not so clear cut what any given thing might be. Flutes, I, I would assume, probably the same or similar. I don't know quite the history of the instrument going back that far, but you know, trumpets have been trumpeting for quite some time. <laughs> um, so yeah, organ, upright bass, fiddles, flutes, tambourines, some type of horn that's probably in the brass department because I, I doubt saxophones are in the picture here. One upright bass drum and perhaps other instruments. Okay, so we are definitely not in the instrumentation ballpark of rock music because that hasn't been invented yet and won't be for several more decades. Uh, Jazz is just barely being born at this point in time. So this is definitely not a jazz ensemble. Um, Most importantly, I guess jazz ensembles would likely have been using a seated drum kit at this point. Um, Like that was a thing if I'm remembering this correctly. So this is not a jazz ensemble. Um, and it's probably not a folk music ensemble because like the folk Americana sound, I think this would be too much wind instruments for that, uh, especially with like the trumpets. And so I'm, I'm using probability language here, but I know um, 
what is the focus here? Because the people who are corresponding with Ellen White about what happened at camp meeting in Indiana said very explicitly and very clearly, these musicians are as well-trained as any Salvation Army band. And the reference point for what happened in Indiana was Salvation Army wind band music, Salvation Army band music. Um, now, if you're not familiar, the Salvation Army is a Christian denomination. Like they are a church. They're not just a charity. They're not just a clothing store. They are a church. Um, they were started by a guy by the name of William Booth. Uh, he's like one of their main founders. And his whole thing was service to the poor. Um, so he was like the radical, like urban ministry, reach out to the poor, clothe people, feed people. Like, I mean, people know what they think of with the Salvation Army today, even right. Like homeless shelters um, and thrift stores. Like that's the, that's the whole deal with the Salvation Army. Right. William Booth was also really big on music and he had no problem saying like, I want to get a, an orchestra together. I want to get a wind band together, a marching band, a choir. I want to get music so that when we go out in the streets and we're doing ministry, we can draw attention to ourselves. We can get a crowd and then we can preach the gospel and hand out food. Like that's the, some of the Salvation Army ethos, right? They have their own distinctive um, repertoire. The Salvation Army is a, a church that has been doing music for a long time, both covering existing songs and creating their own songs. Um, the, the Salvation Army brass band has kind of its own aesthetic, its own style. Like the brass instruments and the Salvation Army go real deep. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's that they have their own style. And at that point in history, they were kind of one of those driving influential forces in what would have been contemporary Christian music at the time. We just have a hard time seeing it because in like to our ears, it's a mix of like gospel music and folk music and what we think of as like just the broad stream of low church Protestant hymnody, right? So this kind of brings us into something that we talked about in the last episode when we, we had like the, the high church guys critiquing low church hymnody and saying like, bro, these are bad songs. Well, speaking of bad songs, um, one of the things that got complained to uh, that they said to Ellen White was, oh, the band at the Adventist Indiana camp meeting in 1900, they're not using our book. They're not using our songbook. They are using Garden of Spices. Now, Garden of Spices is the title of a hymnal published in 1900 by the Salvation Army. It's their book. So the Adventists in 1900 went and got the popular CCM music book of the time, Garden of Spices by the Salvation Army. And they were playing songs from that hymnal at the 1900 Indiana camp meeting. Which raises the question, well, what songs were they likely singing? Because I'm an Adventist. Until I really actually decided to look into this in detail, I didn't know like what songs are in that book. I've never held a copy of Garden of Spices in my hand. Thankfully, due to this wonderful invention called the internet, I was able to look at it without holding the book in my hand. Because you can see like scanned and photographed versions of all the pages online i have a link to it somewhere actually 
And by nice, somewhere, nice. I mean right in front of me. But there's like there's an archive, um, like PDF of this songbook, and I went through it. I looked through the book, and there is a lot of material that's unfamiliar. Like there are songs that I'm looking at. I'm just like I have never heard of this ever before in my life, right? Like as you would expect, it's from over a hundred years ago. But let me go through the Salvation Army songbook and point out, and I I should comment. I only went through about half of it. So this is what I recognized from about half of Garden of Spices by the Salvation Army. You ready? I have a funny feel. I have a funny feeling that these. Okay, I'm just gonna start saying names. <laughs> Jesus, lover of my soul, holy, holy, holy. Trust and obey. Onward, Christian soldiers. Take my life and let it be. Um. It actually goes by a different title. I, I think it in, in that book, it goes by My Life for Thee. But and then if you actually look at the music, it's Take My Life and Let It Be. Um, Sweet Hour of Prayer, Standing on the Promises. Uh, Luther's Cradle Hymn, also known as Away in a Manger. Um, I Must Tell Jesus. Uh, when the roll is called up yonder, my faith looks up to thee, just as I am. Uh, Jesus saves. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. What a friend we have in Jesus. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Anywhere with Jesus, I can safely go. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Uh, coronation, also known as all hail the power of Jesus. Name, let angels prostrate fall. Uh, leaning on the ever everlasting arms. Uh, the solid rock, also known as my hope is built on nothing less. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Uh, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Um, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Nearer my God to thee, more love to thee. And that's where my list ends. Wow. Now, if you're familiar at all with any of those titles, you'll recognize that those are still hot songs in the church today. Mm -hmm. Those are like greatest hits type of material. Yeah. I get the sense like the, these are the songs that have survived the test of time because they're the good ones. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine that if there were songs that were like, yo, you know, what's the really good one? Let's play it. I, I, we don't have their bulletin from that camp meeting. We don't have their set list for the band, but I would assume that some of those songs were probably in the worship set because those are the, those are the greats. Like those are the songs that endure still to today. Yeah. Um, it would be shocking to have all of the, like some of these are just standards of like low church Protestant worship. So, excuse me, actually some of those are standards of like even Catholic, like holy, holy, holy. That's even used in the Catholic church. Like, like some of these are just like standards of Western Christian worship in general. <laughs> yeah, so like yeah. they were singing these songs. Yeah. We can say with almost like absolute certainty. And interestingly, something that I also noticed, um, you also have to think about the era because a bunch of the songs that I didn't recognize that weren't familiar to me were um, prohibitionist songs. Like if you actually read the lyrics of the songs, it's songs lamenting a child who is down at the bar every night or um, criticizing people for being alcoholics, like to put it mildly, like some of these songs are just like really harsh. Um, wow. But you think about the era and you think about, you know, when I talk to my Salvation Army friend, like he tells me the craziest stories 
about just being like, oh, I was just chatting with this like drug dealer today. I was just like hanging out with it. We were doing community service. Like, you know, just he just tells me the craziest stories about like the most out there people because the Salvation Army does this thing called slightly more than minimal effort when it comes to the poor. So, you know, they get into like the actual thick of it. So they actually see the suffering in the world and and they do something about it. And so one of the things that would have been true for the Salvation Army back then, just as much as it is true today, is that they were involved with people who were like down in the dumps in life and really going through it with addiction and all of that stuff. Given the time period, it's no surprise that prohibitionist songs got into their hymnals. And some of the songs, I look at them now and they leave a bad taste in my mouth. They're a little too judgy. Um, like it make me uncomfortable and like, ah, oh, y'all did not know about mental health stuff back then, did you? But but something very, very fascinating that I found out literally like two days ago, like this week, um, I'd actually just published an article on the Haystack about um, some theologically specific Adventist songs by current artists, right? Because I'm like, well, let, let's talk about our own stuff. And um, someone pointed out to me that there is a song from within our own history called the Coughing and Choking Song. What? The coughing and choking song that has to do with tobacco and specifically chewing tobacco. And it's a song that was written by uh, within Adventism, essentially to mock tobacco usage. Wow. Um, yeah. So for however many criticisms I might have had in my mind, just being like, man, Salvation Army, you guys were like really mean to the alcoholics in 1900. This is apparently something that Adventism has done as well with tobacco. Because we wow. have the coughing and choking song. Um, I got a YouTube. Which is rude. <laughs> yeah. You need to do I like a I modern could... rendition of it. I think I think there are people who have, there are recordings of it. I'll see if I can find that for you. <laughs> um, but that's a thing If that anything, exists. just for like amusement, because that's horrible. <laughs> so so let me yeah. let me summarize what you're saying here then. So yeah. far, what you're saying is the context of Ellen White's Bedlam of Noise, 1900 Indiana camp meeting statement that a lot of people like to use to you know, project it onto modern debates of worship music. Um, the context is actually what we're seeing taking place at the Indiana camp meeting is hymns. Yes. They're singing hymns. All right. Played in and the traditional also got this, style of the Salvation Army. Played in the traditional style of the Salvation Army. Okay. So they're singing hymns, played in the traditional style of the Salvation Army. So what on earth are people complaining about? Because that seems pretty standard. Right. So what it then comes down to is the nature of the statement Ellen White makes about it. Um, it obviously is going to be important for us to read the statement at some point. I've got it pulled up, so I will, you know, I'll read it in a second. Um, the reason that it becomes such an issue is because she looks at what happens there and she makes a prediction that this will happen again towards the end of time yes. and makes a bunch of predictions that Satan will use music as a deception and, and all of these things. Um, she, her statement includes a specific shout out to there will be drums and loud shouting. Um, again, we're, we're about to read it. So, you know, we'll get there. Um, I've always wondered about the loud shouting, like as opposed to soft shouting, but um, 
but uh then i remember the kind of vocals i do and you can't actually do soft shouting but that's a topic for another time um but uh yeah there is a specific nod to drums being a factor and so people really zero in on that um one of the things that i think is worth pointing out at this point is that given one if you know anything about what salvation army music is like it doesn't involve rock beats it doesn't involve like a rock backbeat. I mean, there's something somewhat like it that you'll hear occasionally in some of their music, but I think that's more of a modern uh, innovation. And also remember that syncopation is a very commonly used practice in European, like traditional music and classical music. So like, don't get it twisted. But um, the kind of drums they had on, on deck, if we take Mr. Haskell's description at face value, that they had three tambourines and an upright bass drum, that is not the kind of drum instrumentation you would need to create what we would recognize as like a rock or R&B backbeat. By and large, they probably wouldn't have been doing that at that point anyways. It's just way too early for that to have entered into like white musicians' vocabulary. So that's, that's just something to keep in mind. Um, at least, yeah generally probably too early for that to have entered into like the white musicians vocabulary um yeah i'm being approximate with my my music history dates here but yeah 1900 that's just too early um so we are like oh rhythm rhythm dangerous drums bad syncopation that's it but the kinds of things that like christian berdahl or ivor myers or Brian Newman or whoever are going to complain about and be like, oh, it's this beat. It's it's that. It's the boom, ka, boom, boom, ka. That's not in their musical vocabulary at this point in 1900. So if you're picturing that in your head or if you see someone playing a cajon at your youth group or if you see someone playing a drum set at church, that is not the drum sound that was used at this meeting. It could not have been. And But this is the, this is why we can't just chuck all of our other knowledge out the window when we come to Ellen White. We have to understand music history. We have to understand where syncopation and polyrhythms and this particular style of drumming came from and when it entered into common usage in America. Because if you don't know those things, you can make up an artificial history in your head just and go wherever you want with it, right? But um, what Ellen White is reacting to can be created with traditional hymns and what to us would sound like very, very traditional music. So mm. it's not the music style per se that is at fault here. Um, mm. Now, could it be done in a way that like drove people into a frenzy? Absolutely. And we'll talk about the collective experience of being driven into a frenzy by music in this episode as well. We'll talk about... Um, Travis Scott and Astro World and people getting trampled uh, in a second, but you can't you can't project mosh pit backwards in time to the situation. Um, nor can you project Pentecostalism backwards in time to this situation. You you just can't do it. Um, it's anachronism in its purest sense. So I would like to read the quotation now. Uh, are we good? Like I know I just threw a lot of words out there, but like I, we're good so far. I'm I'm good. Yeah, go for yeah. it. All right, cool. So let's let's take a look at what she actually said. Um, selected messages, book two. You know, one of the great mysteries of the universe to me is how 
reference numbers work in Ellen White. I've been an Adventist all my life. And like every time someone quotes her, I'm just like, what do these letters mean? What do these, <laughs> are these page numbers? Are these sections? Every time I open Ellen White, it's not like I don't own like at least five copies of the Great Controversy and the page numbers are different in every single That's one. Right, yeah. what, what, how do I do this? I've been through seminary. I've taken the Ellen White course. It still confuses me because like, I don't know, man. Anyways, Selected Messages Book 2, 3.6.2. Two three six dot three and three seven dot one. If you know what that means, you're better than me. And here's the quote. <laughs> All right. It is impossible to estimate too largely the work that the Lord will accomplish through his proposed vessels in carrying out his mind and purpose. The things you have described as taking place in Indiana, the Lord has shown me would take place just before the close of probation. Every uncouth thing will be demonstrated. There will be shouting with drums, music, and dancing. The senses of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to make right decisions. And this is called the moving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never reveals itself in such methods. Wow, she actually said it. Wow, the anti-Trinitarians are going to come out of the woodwork. Um, in such a bedlam of noise. Uh, this is an invention of Satan to cover up his ingenious methods for making of none effect the pure, sincere, elevating, ennobling, sanctifying truth for this time. Better never have the worship of God blended with music than to use musical instruments to do the work which last January was represented to me would be brought into our camp meetings. The truth for this time needs nothing of this kind in its work of converting souls. A bedlam of noise shocks the senses and perverts that which, if conducted aright, might be a blessing. The powers of satanic agencies blend with the din and noise to have a carnival, and this is termed the Holy Spirit's working. When the camp meeting is ended, the good which ought to have been done and which might have been done by the presentation of sacred truth is not accomplished. Those participating in the supposed revival receive impressions which lead them adrift. They cannot tell what they formerly knew regarding Bible principles. All right. Lot going Lengthy. On there wordy <laughs> lots going on in there um interestingly um and i don't have this quote on hand but um subsequently to this i think maybe a couple years later she went and spoke to some gathering of the church um and she kind of spoke to this issue again interestingly in her second statement she left drums out this is again something i should have pulled up uh had ready for this but that exists. Talk to your friends who know Ellen White well. They can probably point you to this. <laughs> and if anything, I can find the quote for you and we can put it on the website like after yep. this. But this quote already has enough to unpack as it is. There is so much going on in this quote. Um, and it's, it's kind of hard sometimes to know um, where to begin. Um, actually, I'm looking at the notes for my reframe series. That, like, that's what I'm reading off of. And Marcos, I have to tell you this, right underneath that absolute paragraph of a quote, um, I have a list of like, not counter arguments, but like points to consider. Um, and one of them is something I wrote down from when I was aware of your ministry, but hadn't actually been introduced to you yet. All I have is a bullet point. I have no idea what it's doing here, but it's just bullet point. Marcos Torres, quote, functionally binitarian. Um, I don't know if you remember ever saying or writing anything with those words in it. Yes. Um, yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and um, I believe I was quoting 
David Hamstra. Okay. It's David Hamstra or is it Eric Hamstra? Oh boy. Hamstra. I don't know that there is a Eric Hamstra. I know there is a David Hamstra. Okay. It's David then. Yes. Sorry, David. <laughs> Sorry, bro. I couldn't, I couldn't pinpoint the first name. Yeah. Uh, there was, um, there was something that he wrote about functional binitarianism, which is basically as a church, we believe in the Trinity theologically, but we function uh, as a binary. So we function based on father, son, and the Holy right. Spirit seems to be absent from our functional, practical life. But theologically, right. we believe in the Trinity. So that's right. that's the sort of the main point that he was getting at. Yeah, not, not sure why you put it there and what point you were going to make. But <laughs> yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think now that you've you've given me that you've reminded me of the context. Oh, yeah. Functionally binitarian. We have discounted the Holy Spirit in a lot of situations. Um, I think it's interesting to keep that in mind when it comes to how we view this quotation and Ellen White talking about things that are termed, things that are falsely um, described as the moving of the Holy Spirit. I think what has happened is that in our desire to avoid becoming whatever bad thing she's describing here, we've written off anything that would involve passionate or emotional or excited something happening because of the Holy Spirit. Um, and she makes a number of statements in this quote that, I, and this is going to sound maybe a little challenging, but the first thing I would like people to do when, when looking at this quote is say, is that true? Is that accurate? Okay. For example, um, she says here, the Holy Spirit never reveals itself, square bracket, sick. That's himself, close square bracket in such methods, in such a bedlam of noise. Um, and so there's this, and, and then in one more spot later on, she also says like noise equals Holy Spirit not present. This claim is not, like cannot be substantiated in light of the Bible. Like it just does not work with the Bible, right? Like the Holy Spirit, according to the book of Judges, was involved in Samson tearing a lion to pieces, the Holy Spirit is involved in all kinds of things. I mean, the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is involved in apparently the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Like this isn't like the Holy Spirit is not soft inherently, right? That this is, I think, one of those instances where cultural predispositions, cultural assumptions are being taken for granted by not just the prophet, but her entire social circle. The, they are taking for granted certain things that to them seem obviously true because of Protestant American culture, not necessarily because they've been divinely inspired. I know that's going to rub some people the wrong way, but this is something you and I, Marcos, have interacted with already in some of the online conversations. The idea that just because divine inspiration is present, just because a people have a prophet, just because people are living in the time when the Bible itself is being written, doesn't mean that God has dropped an entire culture on them out of the sky from heaven, and that the, just everything that is normative in their assumptions is somehow divinely ordained, right? Absolutely. This is something we have to keep in our heads. Ellen White had cultural assumptions, mm. Um I think another well, uh, another another point that I would make to that as well, and and again, mm -hmm. this isn't this isn't to discredit or say 
oh, we can put our reason above Ellen White and just ignore what she's saying, because that's not the point that we're getting at here. No. Um, but there, again, when, we, when you step away from a fundamentalist framework into like a holistic inspiration, where you realize that God's inspiration works through the whole being, and that includes their education, their, comp- their culture, their temperament, their context, their history, then you have to take those things into consideration, right? You have to take all of that into consideration to arrive at a healthy conclusion. And we do that with the Bible, or else we wouldn't have a woman prophet. Right. Right. And, and, and we wouldn't and we wouldn't have, you know, we, we Adventist historically might have supported slavery like Southern Baptists did if we didn't yeah. take that view of, hey, it might be it might be written that way in black and white in the text. But we got to read between the words because, you know, we recognize that words in themselves are imperfect vehicles of communicating divine truth. So we read yeah. deeply and we consider context, et cetera. And, and, and one of the things we have to consider here as well is that I would, I would, I would begin by saying, um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll toss the ball back over to you. But one of the things that people have asked me as they've been listening to the series, one of the questions that I've encountered is, because um, we've been talking about like culture, right? Like different cultures and, you know, the, the mm-hmm. sort of the need for cultural inclusivity and, 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 you know, the need to deconstruct Eurocentrism and, and sort of like Anglo primacy and, and things like that within the worship context and within within our cultural context as a whole as a church. Um, and one of the questions that someone asked me in in so many words, because I'm paraphrasing here, is does that mean that everything goes in the name of culture? And of course, like that's not what we're saying. You know, like we're not saying that anything goes in the name of culture. Like I'm familiar that they, like I'm aware that there are cultures, for example, in the world where, you know, putting rings on a woman's neck. So it stretches their neck out, um, which which means that if, you know, if you want to punish the woman, you take the rings off and then she can't, you know, she dies. Like that's a mm-hmm. cultural practice that goes back thousands of generations in, in some of those cultures. Um, mm-hmm. And in the name of cultural inclusivity, you wouldn't say, hey, that's OK. That's your culture. You know, you would challenge that with the gospel. You know, so we're not saying like culture is just an open door to anything and everything, you know, like there is what we're saying is every culture has aspects that are redeemable and aspects that are challenged by the gospel. And there is no one culture that is immune to that. Even Eurocentric culture has aspects that are redeemable and aspects that are challenged by the by, by the gospel. And a culturally, and so the solution to that isn't to say everybody become European as though European culture is somehow, you know, doesn't have any issues with it. Like this is sacred, you know, this yeah. is holy. We we figured it out. Um, so number one, and number two, I'd say as well, like in 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 especially when we're talking about like like you know, the collective worship thing. Um mm-hmm at least from my perspective, like my thing that I share with people is like, I'm not advocating for a bedlam of noise that disrupts the senses, right? Like I, I'm not advocating for that. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about like, what, what did Ellen White actually mean by that? Because one of the sure. things that frustrates me is that people take that little phrase and they basically say any music that I don't like that's what this phrase is talking about. It's noise. Yeah. 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 And so then the whole conversation becomes about volume control, right? Like any it, volume control and stylus and stylism. So like any music yeah. that I don't like is necessarily the bedlam of noise that disrupts the senses that Ellen Weiss talks. And then you get into pseudoscience, all this syncopated beat. Does, and we talked about that already. Yeah. So I'm not going to go into that, but yeah. you know, and, and final point that I would make as well is one of the things that I noticed, when you look at the personality of Ellen White, is Ellen White was radical. Mm-hmm. She was radical. Her ideas were radical. Her, I mean, she was a she was a female prophet 
in the right. 18, early 1900s. That yeah. in itself was extremely radical, right? Mm -hmm. um, she was a radical person with radical beliefs, radical ideas, who literally wrote a letter to the church saying the fugitive slave law that would just passed, demanding the return of a slave to its master, we will not obey and we will bear the consequences. Uh, and this was a federal law, like we will bear the consequences, even if it means jail time, which it probably, I'm pretty sure it did. Like we will bear the consequences because a slave does not belong to any man. God alone is his master. Like that's radical. Right. Yeah. And so when you think about that, one of the things you have to think about with radical people is a radical person like Ellen White usually comes with a certain personality type. Yeah, they're usually attached to one another. Right. And most of the time, like every radical person that I've ever met is naturally hyperbolic in the way they communicate. Yes. And when you read Ellen White's writings, it used to bother me all the time because I would read things in her writings and be like, oh, did you really have to say it like that? Like, that's just a bit, it seems a bit extreme. It's it seems a, a bit over the top, yeah. you know? And then like, I started to realize as I started to understand like the way personality plays into, and this is why it's important to understand how revelation inspiration works. The way personality mm -hmm. plays into the way that Ellen White communicated, she spoke hyperbolically all the time. And if you read her writings, you, you, come, you come across it all the time and you're like, Oh man, like you could have toned that down a little bit, Ellen, but that was right. her personality. And so being aware of her personality, you can look at her statements and, and begin to identify when hyperbole is at play and hyperbole shows up in the Bible as well. You know, okay. when Jesus says, if, uh, you know, if, if, if your eye causes you to lust, Cut gouge it out. out, you know, like yeah. that's hyperbole, man. Like you don't apply that literally. And nobody would say, well, some bizarre fanatics would say, yeah, apply it literally, cut off your arm, gouge out your eye. But if you understand right. that it's hyperbole, then you take that statement and you say, well, what's the main theme? Let's apply a little bit of salt. Let's tone this thing down so we can apply it healthily. And I think we have to understand that when we're reading a radical person like Ellen White, and I use the term radical in, in, in the most honorable of ways, because I'm glad yeah. she was a radical, you know, yeah, she was course. radical socially, she was a radical theologically, in many different ways. And I think that that's part of the beauty of Ellen White. But if we don't recognize that, and we don't recognize that radical personalities often speak with a lot of hyperbole, um, or hyper hyperbole, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that word properly. Hyperbole. Um, yeah, yeah, hyperbole. Um, then you run the risk of taking these statements that are hyperbole, and then just running with them. And she had that problem even when, she, even when she was alive, you know? So anyways, just wanted to throw those, those sort, of, sort of quick ideas out there because I think it's important to like map out what's being said and what's not being said so that we don't end up like, you know, people don't end up at a conclusion that like we're not headed for, you know? Yeah. I know you saw me kind of rummaging through this book uh, as you were speaking, not trying to be rude, but it just, it made me, I was trying to find something that I'd highlighted where at the 1919 Bible conference, A.G. Daniels told them about conversations he'd had with Ellen White um, about, I think, food, something to do with food and like an international context. He's like, what about not America? What about like overseas? Yes, the Eskimos. The food, right? No, no, no. He's talking Eskimo. about China, actually. Oh, he was talking about China. There's another yeah. one on the Eskimos, I'm sure, where also, he said to her, like, if, if we had considered the cultural context of the Eskimos, because like they can't yeah. grow vegetables, you know, they have to eat whales, you know, <laughs> it's like if right. we had considered a cultural context, you wouldn't have written the things you wrote. A, right. Also, um, sorry, somebody just dropped off a package. You probably heard the, the poster, yeah, post, postage person yelling in the background. But yeah, it was like you, yeah. you wouldn't have written them so strongly if you had considered mm -hmm. context outside of America. 
And she actually yeah. agreed. And she's like, well, you know, people have to use common sense, obviously. You know? <laughs> yeah. Sa same thing as like a conversation about China, I believe, or, or maybe I'm confusing something else that she, anyways, there was a conversation between AG Daniels and her. And he's basically like, you don't mean this for like everyone everywhere all the time. Right. And she's like, of course not. No. Like she's like, my goodness. Like if I had to, if people aren't going to use common sense, I'm going to have to never stop writing basically. Right. And yeah. so she yeah. even approached her own writings with like, people are going to apply common sense and like logic and rational thinking to this and know like, sometimes I'm like, I'm stating a point for effect. I'm not necessarily like screaming at everyone ever to the same intensity. I think the ultimate point here is, again, just coming back to this. And this is why we started out the episode with that whole no discussion on revelation inspiration. Because if mm -hmm. you have a fundamentalist, evangelical version of revelation inspiration, everything we just said is offensive. Yeah. Right? Everything we just said is, oh, look at these liberals. You know? They don't believe but that she had the gift of prophecy. Exactly. Which is... Yeah, obviously not what we're saying because we, we do believe she did. Um, but if you have an Adventist understanding of revelation and inspiration, then it makes perfect sense. It's like, oh yeah, she was a prophet. She had her own personality. God didn't delete her personality when she wrote stuff. She used a lot of hyperbole. So you have to think and use your common sense and your reasoning, you know, when you, when you apply her state and not just go run off with it and start smashing people with it, you know? Um, and she had a context, a cultural context, a historical context, you know, she had a Protestant American context that, yeah. In, in, in a letter that she's writing between Haskell and herself, there's a lot of things that are assumed between the two of them that yes. we in the 21st century are not aware of those assumptions. And so we have to we have to take that into consideration before we go and say, yeah, if you're playing Chris Tomlin at camp meeting, it's the bedlam of noise that she was talking about. And it's like, right. Yeah. Come on. It's Chris Tomlin, bro. You know, <laughs> speaking of assumptions between Haskell and white um, interesting tidbit that I learned in school um, S.N. Haskell arrived at the conclusion that maybe we shouldn't be eating pork before Ellen White did. And she actually criticized him for it and said, like, so you think this is true and God is only going to reveal it to you and nobody else? This was before Ellen White herself stopped eating pork. So he was yeah. actually ahead of the curve, like ahead of her on that. Mm. And I just think that's really fascinating as like a dynamic of like, how does Ellen White as a person who can make mistakes and develop and grow in her understanding, how does yeah. that work? Because that's one of those things that you'd think would be like a cornerstone. Like she's the health reform reformer par excellence, right? Yeah, yeah. That's but right. she actually criticized someone who arrived at that conclusion biblically before yeah. her having a vision. That's so right. like this, and she, she also is... thought Joseph Bates was annoying when he kept going on about the Sabbath in the early days. She was like, what's what is it with this wise guy always talking about this? All right. She didn't talk like that. She wasn't from Jersey. But, you know, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know right. like he just kept going on about the Sabbath. And she's got like these really funny letters where it's like she's just like really irritated by Joseph Bates just constantly going on about the Sabbath. Or the fact that like the Adventists, when they were onboarding Sabbath as a spiritual practice, didn't know what time it started. And for a long time, Ellen White herself was convinced that 6 p.m. was the time. And it wasn't until mm -hmm. J.N. Andrews did more research. I, I think it was J.N. Andrews. It was either him or a different theologian. I should refresh myself on, on all these details. But it wasn't until a theologian in our denomination did more study and said, guys, actually, it's traditionally, as far as like 
actual biblical practice goes, it's sunset, not strictly speaking 6 p.m. I mean, the sun could set at 6 p.m., but it's not strictly 6 p.m. It's sunset. That's right. And then she used her gift to confirm that after they'd done the Bible study, which I think is a really good model for us to understand how to approach this passage, because Mm. she makes these statements not only here, but also in other parts of her writings. Um, There's a quote I've got written on a different page here. I'm not going to pull it up just yet, but there's a number of instances where she will refer to visionary experiences she had in heaven of like actually being in God's space, or at least in vision being in God's space and hearing the angels singing. And it's interesting because she pretty regularly reports that the angels sing very, very softly, that they sing very softly and subdued in like these pleasant harmonies. It's simple. It's serene. That is how she tends to represent the music of the angels, right? And I think that that has probably for her reinforced her sense like, oh, this is what heavenly music is like. It's soft. Now, if you read the Bible, (laughs) I was just about to say, uh, Revelation paints a very different picture. (laughs) God did not treat Isaiah. It seems to be the case that God got the angels together when he was about to bring Ellen White in vision into heaven and said, listen, y'all. I know you want to while out, but what you guys did to Isaiah back in the day, not cool. Can you just like (laughs) hardened, like Middle Eastern man in the desert? I know he could handle it. It's a, you still made him feel like he was going to die. Okay. (laughs) This poor woman just please, please be nice to her. Okay. Gabriel, like, can you turn the bass down? (laughs) I'm bringing it. This is not Isaiah. This is Ellen White. I'm bringing up here to talk to her. I do not want you guys to break her in half. Okay. The whole, the, the foundations of my sanctuary being shaken and she can't see anything because of the smoke. That's not happening this time. You guys, I don't know what I, that's not happening this time. I do not permit you to snap this poor woman in half with your insane Holy, holy, holy rendition. That's right. Okay. And Gabriel's and you, like, like, you read in Revelation, fine. like, you know, like peals of thunder and lightning as the angels are worshiping God. And it's like, yeah, that's definitely yeah. not soft and subdued. But that was John the Apostle, who was like a pretty hardened guy. You know? He's already yeah. survived being attempted to be executed once. Yeah. He'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> like I, but this is, the, I, obviously I'm, I'm handling this in a joking manner, but I really do think like, just because Ellen White saw something doesn't mean that she saw the whole picture. It doesn't mean that God wasn't accommodating what she could handle. Mm-hmm. I mean, frankly, like, again, if you look at the Bible, the music of the angels is not always soft. You just you, you have to read the first six chapters of Isaiah to get this or any part of Revelation to get this. Right. Yeah. But also Ellen White had visionary experiences of seeing Jesus. And from the language she used, she seems to describe him as a white man, which is historically impossible. Or at least like aggressively improbable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. It, you know, and obviously there are some ambiguities. Some Middle Eastern populations can sometimes be confused with like a European person of a certain type, but Jesus was not like 
a Western European white guy or a yeah. Northern European white guy. It's just like hilariously out of the question. Yeah. But it may it's possible that God did what God has done in many other circumstances and accommodated what the person he's talking to or appearing to can understand, can relate to. Yeah. Um, I mean, what else is the incarnation if not that, right? That's right. Um, so, and, and just before you you go on and, yeah. and make your final point, I just wanted to backtrack a little bit. Um, final. Matthew, Matthew <laughs> Ma- sorry, final point, your next point. Is, <laughs> we're nowhere near the final point. Your no. next point. Matthew Lucio, Matthew J. Lucio, who runs the Adventist History Podcast, which is another mm-hmm. excellent um, podcast, really, really worth listening to. Uh, he had a really interesting um, scenario that he talked about in one of the episodes, and I can't remember all the characters that were involved. Uh, but this scenario, I think, perfectly captures how to relate to the radicalness and and often like hyperbole um, of of Ellen White. There was a scenario where she actually wrote the General Conference and said, "Look, our leaders need to embody and model." the health message mm-hmm. uh, because if we want the people to, to embrace it, then we should model it. And so she had a recommendation. She said, um, why don't we make a, why don't we have like a kind of like an, an agreement or a covenant or, you know, a contract, whatever, however you want to think of it, where the leaders of the conference all sign it saying, you know, I am going to, I'm going to live the health message and embody it. And then for her in her sort of like radical thinking, you know, this will get, all the leaders on board and then they'll be modeling this like radical health message and then people will be like oh yeah we should do it too you know um anyways the general conference president at the time whom i cannot remember his name um wrote to her and said that's a terrible idea (laughs) like we already have problems with fanatics in our ranks and this is just going to give them so much fuel for their fanaticism i don't think this is a good idea um and so Ellen White right, basically writes back to him and changes her mind. Right. You know, it's As like, she has oh, yeah, right to do. Let's, let's not do that then, you know? And it's like, well, wait a minute, time out. She's a prophet. You're not supposed to disagree with her, right? Like, you're not supposed to push back. It's like God has spoken, you know, everybody right. comply. But um, no, she changed her mind. She saw the wisdom in the council, like the, the, the sort of like radical, hyperbolic, you know, forward driving personality just got tempered with a bit of wisdom and insight from from the president at the time and it was like okay let's go a different route then you know she still wanted the general conference leaders to embody and model the health message but realized okay this is probably not the best way to do it don't do it like that so this is an example of you know just again taking into account the personality and 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 the, the the tendency to to speak with with very strong language and hyperbolic language and so when we come to these statements we have to you know, we have to balance it out. We have to, we have to definitely identify the principles and we'll, we'll get into that in a second and identify what's being said and what's not being said, and then make a cultural, build a cultural bridge where the application can actually be healthy and, and inclusive and, and, and unite us and bring us together rather than just using this as a way of clobbering anyone and everyone whose musical style differs from what you're used to. That's it for today, everyone. We are out of time, so make sure you keep tuning in. Like, 
share, subscribe, tell your friends about it, and uh, enjoy the journey along with us. In the meantime, if you haven't had a chance to do it yet, I invite you to go to the storychurchproject.com and check out the new Bible study guide, The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture. The second edition is now available. And this is a Bible study set that's been specifically designed for communicating the narrative of redemption, the story of Scripture, to millennials, Zeds, uh, post-church, unchurched, post-modern generations. Make sure you check that out. Get your hands on a copy, and I will catch you next week. Mm-hmm.